Hi, welcome back to the Hearsay podcast. This is number 17 and my guest today is Tim Levinson, aka Earthboy. Apart from doing his solo stuff, Tim is also a member of the hip-hop group The Herd. He co-founded the record label Elephant Tracks and manages the label as well as doing artist management. So he's a super busy dude and I'm totally chuffed he made the time to have a little chat with me. The illustration for Tim's Strange Show Story this week is by my friend Adam Lester. Adam is an amazing Brisbane artist and I'm so excited he agreed to be part of the podcast. You can see that drawing at Hearsay Podcast on Instagram or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Okay, here it is. Hearsay number 17, my chat with Earthboy. Tim, how's it going? Really good, thanks. Hey, thanks so much for being on my little podcast. Hey, no problem. It's been a journey trying to plug in chords. <laughs> I love how we talked for a little bit and then as soon as we started the official interview, you said, hey, thanks for being, and I was like, no problem. <laughs> it was totally fine. Nothing, nothing at all went wrong earlier. Well, as we were chatting about, musicians and technology are kind of like peas in a pod and... Um, it, I, I definitely wasn't sitting in my studio trying to wrench a cable between a hole in a wall and <laughs> trying to jam it into other spots to make it all work. I've actually just, it's just all been a dream and it is a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, that's so nice to hear. So I'm excited because we don't really know each other very well. Mm -hmm. We've had like a few run-ins at festivals and stuff and and you've always been very nice to me. <laughs> we've all, we've had a, we've had a few run-ins in festivals and you've been very nice. This we <laughs> slightly mixed messaging there. <laughs> that's um that's my um ESL German translation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to choose to say it's like running in like as if you're bowling a ball to the batsman or something rather than running in and getting into a fight backstage at a festival. Right. Yeah. Well, there's been none of that, but I, I reckon if we did, you'd win. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm way taller than you, but I'm like a real pussy. Yeah, I, I, um, I've always had a really, uh, you know, I've, I've had a warm respect for what you do. And Aww. it is nice that we get to have a chance to ha have a conversation like this. Um, it's really nice. Yeah. I've had also had a warm respect. And I always like I try to remember sort of pinpoint my first memory of each artist. And I think my first memory of you is when you did the Kev Comedy tribute show at River Stage, mm. which was quite a long time, maybe 10 years ago or something. Yeah. I mean, there were so many amazing artists on that show because I remember it being like, you know, it was obviously Paul Kelly and... Um, Bernard Fanning and Missy Higgins and all these like beautiful singers and then I think it was was it the herd that was on that or was it, it was. Boy? Yeah. yeah and you guys just came on and did something so completely different and blew everyone's mind so it was so great I have nothing but great memories of that tour that really opened my eyes in a lot of ways and um, it was just such a great little uh, detour from the hustle and bustle of release album 
promote album tour, write album tour, promote yeah. tour, <laughs> all those sorts of cyclical things. And this one really was such a nice little episode um, that that both encapsulated a whole bunch of why we make music and, and what we do whilst offering a really great new experience, collaborating with other artists and just even just socialising and being in close proximity with all these different artists. It yeah. was such a great one. I, I definitely, my, my probably the thing I remember most about that River Stage show was sitting backstage with, you know, the drones in one corner and Tex Perkins in another and all these great artists that were sitting together and then... I got mustered up the courage to go over into the corner where Paul Kelly was sitting there reading a book, <laughs> as as he's known to do. Yeah. I, you know, since since sort of witnessing him in those times where I didn't know him, I've come to understand what the book means on tour and and being able to have a book and just get lost in a book in amongst the frenzy of that nervous energy backstage is such an amazing talent in and of itself just to kind of learn how to master that one and be able to just remove yourself from all of that the, those energies and emotions that that are going on backstage and just be able to control it and have normality i've come to understand how important that book is and that might not be yeah. that might not be his perception of it but that's my perception of why he does it and that's what as an ma- artist manager i sometimes tell artists like you got a big tour you know, there are different techniques that you need to maybe just, you know, be open to as to try and not get lost in all of the craziness of tour and come totally. back completely wiped out. Maybe one of them is this book. Just take a book and just bring normality and routine into all this upheaval. Anyway, I was actually in in the corner and I um I went up to Paul and I I mustered up the courage to just ask him this question. And it was such a rookie uh question, but I I asked him, so, um, you know, how do you write, you know, how do you write songs or something? It was something really, <laughs> really dumb. Like this, this is sort of how, how do you answer that question? But you try and be polite. But anyway, yeah, I timed I timed the question so perfectly that there was all this loud noise and all this conversation and, you know, sound from stage bleeding into the room. And right at that moment, everyone went silent and the stage went <laughs> silent. And so the whole room of these... You know, legendary musicians who are so experienced just heard me ask this rank amateur question for the best and most embarrassing moment. I love it. I love it. That sounds, that reminds me of, I was at a party when I was like 20 or my early 20s and I was, I can't remember what I was talking about. Obviously, probably something disgusting, but I was just as the music stopped at the party, the last word that I said that I was like yelling over the loud music was erection. (laughs) <laughs> like just the music died I was like oh hello yeah. everyone <laughs> sort of slowly your head moves around the room just trying to <laughs> trying to ascertain who exactly is looking at you and has heard it yeah yeah I yeah That's exactly what I, I mean did. but I, I wasn't surrounded by like Tex Perkins and the drones but it was still a pretty great moment <laughs> <laughs> That was a learning moment for me. Do you ever have that book backstage when you play, when you go on tour? Oh, well, uh, a little bit. Um, I've definitely learned how to how to uh, manage the upheaval of touring a little bit better because, 
you know, we wonder why artists end up alcoholics or abusing drugs or just abusing yeah. themselves on tour. And it's because you're trying to, you are still trying to retain some sort of sense of normality because your life for the most part, even when it's not driven and led by routine, if you're not that type of person, touring still is this... Um, uh, it's a roller coaster. It, yeah, it's this amplification of, 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 of life, and you you you're not really doing a lot, but you can't really, you don't have freedom to, to go and do other things that you wish. So you're st- sitting backstage, being bored out of your brains, but you're also incapable of going anywhere and doing something meaningful with your afternoon. So, and then maybe yeah. you've you've got all these short little bursts of time that you have for things like dinner or quickly going to the hotel and it creates this sense of just jittery nervous energy and um and then there's alcohol and and you know the the more that you get worn down I guess it depends on what type of personality you are but the more that becomes coping mechanism it's not really about like oh I want to get hammered it's just this sort of hey alcohol was this thing that was here last night Yeah, yeah it was here it's this constant and I guess you sometimes it's hard to put it into words why you would, you know, be on a Wednesday night in, in you know, Rockhampton and, and, yeah. <laughs> and getting drunk, you know. Like that's not, that's not why we write songs. That's not why we get into this. But they become ways to just sort of cope with this, this strange otherness of touring. Totally. How do you go with drinking on tour? Do you do, you do it a bit or have you sort of um, slowed down? I've never been... I've never been someone who goes off the deep end, but I've never been someone who is really disciplined and and doesn't drink at all. Um, in my later sort of last sort of three, four, five years, I've actually come to really appreciate how great it is waking up the next morning and not not being wrecked on tour. And that that's that takes a lot of discipline. I think I think it really takes a sort of like okay. Yeah, it does feel normal and it does feel like you 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 sort of shave off the edges with a few beers, but that always just leads to just a general sort of um, feeling of discomfort the next day, which just it just piles up. And after four days, and um, in the last couple of tours that I've done, I mean, this year I did a, a, a pretty big tour, and everything was at fever pitch. I had two broken ribs. I had oh my a really really hectic. Um, work schedule when I came home so there was just it was just relentless the whole way and I think I I was a bit more slack but 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 last year it was just like go to the gig sound check be around and and sit on the merch desk and really like work it not yeah not just be sort of detached from that whole thing like sit there and take photos and talk to people and it was really hard work but every morning, because I'm sitting there doing all that stuff, I didn't even have time to drink. So I'd feel pretty fresh and I feel rejuvenated. And I just felt like I could have kept on touring for ages and it felt like I'd I'd cracked the code of touring. Yeah. <laughs> just because I wasn't partying. Regurgitator tours are like that for me because they, well, m- most of them don't really drink very much and everyone's really into exercise. So yeah. we'd be all like working out and like before we go on stage, <laughs> I'd be doing like push-ups and sit-ups and like get like worked up for the show and then, um, you know, and then the next day you'd feel amazing. Yeah. They take these like super duper vitamin B tablets called Tresos B before we go on stage. 
Oh, wow. And, and it's like a real like natural pick-me-up. And you kind of feel like you've just taken something really strong and you just have all this energy, but, it, you know, it's just vitamin B. Anyway, yeah. that's um, <laughs> it's like really nerdy touring and you feel amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we laugh about it and I think that's funny because I think, you know, there are some bands who are real career musicians like Regurgitator and yourself and th- you do have to find ways of managing. And yeah. The reality is that we, you know, not speaking about myself, but we as musicians collectively, we kill ourselves. We we drive ourselves into the gutter. We break our relationships up. We break up our bands. We we have really dysfunctional lives because these are really dysfunctional ways of working. And if you're able to master your own environment, um, you do. You can, it is realistic to keep on going and, and to continuously give heaps on stage and I think it's really fair to take your own health you know much more seriously than we do I think musicians in general laugh off a lot of the really serious things that we face um mental health physical health those sorts of things definitely a lot of mental health issues going on in music yeah but I really think the the ups and downs of this industry are so much more intense than any other ups and downs that I felt because you know one day you'd be like playing to 30,000 people at Big Day Out or something and then the next day you'll you know you'll just be doing nothing or someone will say something mean about your record and you'll take it personally or it's such an emotional roller coaster um, and it's so hard not to believe the negative but also believe the positive. Yeah for sure I think we don't give enough respect to the impact that these things have on our mental health and we don't treat them seriously enough. There was a, there's a book that I became aware of a few years ago called The Creative Mind. Yeah, yeah, I've read that. Oh, have you? I actually haven't read it. I talk about oh. it because I'm just, <laughs> just, I'm so full of shit. But, but I, I was lucky enough to hang out with a presentation that the authors gave. So oh, I, cool. I do have a, a, a general understanding of what the, the book does cover, but I do love how, yeah, here I am talking about it when I haven't actually read it. But it was, it was it was um it was it a psychologist and a and a um composer yeah someone who and and they're you know their husband and wife team and they've you know they they've done a whole bunch of research that really looks into the the correlation between creativity and bipolar and the nature of um how the that those things get confused either side sometimes gets misdiagnosed for the other and that we have a um a a compelling kind of um sense of connecting dots between things finding links between um strange and sometimes incongruent um you know events or patterns or ideas and, and we're constantly trying to see the the link between them. So naturally, you know, artists quite often are more empathetic people because you you are you are trying to understand the links between things, and that that can throw us around. So then we get exposed to this crazy kind of public scrutiny that is so necessary yeah. for the public release of something, and you you become a product. Yeah. So you're releasing a product, but you as the artist, you are the product. So you're open to scrutiny, and you're open to any kind of opinion. Now, you may be, I guess, 
equipped to deal with that emotionally and psychologically. You may just sort of, it may be a water off a duck's back, but for the most part, you're not. You, you, you're learning how to deal with this as you go, and but you don't really ever, I don't think as a general rule we give um, a, a, a real, we don't appreciate the seriousness of how wrong that can go and how quickly and how it can mess with you so much. So I, I feel so, it, it made so much sense to me and I I try and talk to my artists about that. And I mean, it's funny that we're talking about, uh, you know, alcohol on tour and um, <laughs> and whatnot because we, we, we think of those things as jokes. Oh, you know, the, the boozy alcohol, but it's just not. It actually is, these things are really real ways of coping with a, a lifestyle that just is, abnormal oh totally yeah well I feel kind of lucky because I've had different things that have happened in my life and I guess you're always looking for a source of why you deal with things in the way that you do and you trace them back to school or or when you're a kid and maybe you look to your family and I'm always thinking about why I'm a particular person but um but I do think I'm better placed to deal with some of this stuff than others, and I do feel grateful that for whatever reason, I don't find it easy, and I definitely relate with people who go off the deep end, and I really appreciate it, and I try and incorporate it into the way I advise artists that I manage and whatnot. But, but I think that I just am my my disposition is just a little bit better um, set to to deal with it. And um, why do you think that is? Do you think that's because of the upbringing you've had, or or because you've learnt so much up until this point? I guess it's so many different factors. Um, I definitely think part of it is my upbringing. Like, um, you know, I, I, I learnt or I, I guess I just accepted in some, in some ways that conflict was a part of life in a way that wasn't very ideal when I was a kid. But also maybe in the way that my career has, the career trajectory that I've had, you know, whilst at the time I would have always wished that things would have moved quicker, we flew under the radar for so long that I really was given space and time to to learn about all the ins and outs of the industry. And, you know, that that was a blessing and a curse because, um, you, you know, you always want success or, or the, the, you know, the, the kind of, things that we consider to be success to happen fairly quickly and it, it never really happened like that for me but all the successes that did happen were massively significant so I always felt really um like I always had enough of a um of of petrol in the rag to kind of keep the keep the vehicle <laughs> going if that makes sense you know there was always just a sniff a strong enough sniff to keep on going and it enabled me to just learn a little bit more gently right. of, of all this stuff. Like I never was exposed to massive scrutiny in my early career. They were all little things that were fairly manageable. So I was never thrown into the deep end. And I think in the long run, that's really given me a, a slightly better perspective to deal with it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I can, I know how to deal with everything. I think it's just allowed me to, to learn better as I've gone. Do you read your own reviews? Yeah, definitely. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I've come out the other side, though. I've started being like, my reviews, for the most part, are so good that I would Aww. love to... Uh, and I'm sorry, that sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but I, <laughs> I guess... That's great. That's, you're so lucky. 
Well, I've gotten to the point where I've understood that reviews don't really mean anything <laughs> because I would really love to swap having good reviews for having good sales. Because, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, fuck, fuck having this great sort of... Um, you know, critical review with some writer who's, you know, having a competition with themselves to come up with the best sentences and the most, you know, sure. the, the, the best sort of like flourishing of the, the <laughs> la- of language. I just don't care about it anymore because I want something to be really practical and meaningful in my yeah. life. And, I, and I'll constantly read really bad reviews of artists who are tremendously successful. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm glad that people appreciate what I'm doing, but I'd love to just swap places. I could deal with being dissed a little bit more by some, you know, critic if it meant that there was a thousand feverish little frothers who were like yeah. lining lining up to buy a ticket to your gig. So You just need to become more controversial, mate. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm waiting till my senior years to really break out <laughs> that, you know, the inappropriate shit. <laughs> just, you know, I'm growing into my age where... You know, older people just feel more comfortable with having more rigid views. No, I I, I feel like slightly regretful that I said before that I had such good reviews because you know how it is. <laughs> no, You've always had bad reviews and good ones. I don't think you sounded ones, you know? wanky at all. I think that that's a really nice thing to say. I think that's yeah. really um that's lovely that you have good reviews. And you know, yeah. I think I can say that about myself too. I think that ma- mostly um my solo stuff has had really nice reviews. But I do yeah. remember having like pretty bad reviews in my first band Sekiden um because it was such simple dumb pop music and you know, and people called it out for what it was. I would love I would love to have more, you know, I think I have so much respect for great criticism and great writing that I'd long for that really um, considered critique of my music because it doesn't, I don't see it that often and I don't really care for a great review. And when I say, oh, yeah, I get mostly great reviews, I guess like unless they're really well considered and they're thoughtful and researched and they take context into it, it doesn't really mean anything. It just sort of is like, well, they're not brave enough to call me out on something. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and I can't stand it when I when I know another record from a say a peer or or someone else who I know. Um, I don't think it's strong or it's got these weak points. I can't stand it when a critic doesn't address them because it's sort of this 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 reinforcement of mediocrity. And I don't think any from a broader perspective, any kind of cultural contribution is is it benefits from having those 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 critics um shy shy away from the tough stuff i think it's really hard too because i i find it hard to relate to people that obviously everyone has different thoughts and everyone has different taste um and i go well, why didn't you notice that that was shit it's because maybe yeah. they think it's good <laughs> i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> I, don't know. I mean you know that i mean that's always true i I just, I, I really, I deeply care for a lot of this stuff and I, I do want, you know, I do think the, the tough stuff's worth fighting for and the other stuff isn't. And you're totally right. It all comes down to different people's, you know, their own context and the way that they they receive um, the music. In And, yeah, I I hear you. I just, I think I just, I just love, I, I love and I value 
really good critics. And I think it's a sad thing that there's not really an industry there that can hold them up to the point where they can hold us all to account. Yeah, I know what you mean. But getting back to your original question, oh, man, those bad reviews that I think are unfair and that I think are, are badly written and they're just... They're just sort of gossipy and nasty. I yeah. never, I never forget their names. I mean, I <laughs> really, I, I, I'm so bad with that. I just remember their names, and I, I don't necessarily do anything about it. But I'm just like, I'm gonna remember your name. They're dead to me. <laughs> they are so dead to me. I'm, I am going to be in the grave. I'm just, I, all I'm going to be is a bunch of bones in soil, still with their name circling around my mind. Uh, like scr- my my skeleton scratching at the rocks underneath my grave. Your ghost, your ghost will haunt them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's so good. I remember one time when I did a gig at the zoo, and um, we made the the great um, decision. Oh, it wasn't really a decision, but. Uh, the great great misfortune of playing on the same night as the Hilltop Hoods. Some, right. Something that has happened to me at least three times since um, that <laughs> moment, including one night of all places in London. Um, it just seems to be this thing that has, has happened a few times. And, of course, they are the the, the monolith of, of local hip-hop. Are they like nemeses? No, no. They're actually they, – they, um, they hold their own and they, they do things in – in uh, I think they've got a lot of integrity. I, I wouldn't cons- I wouldn't call them mates at all, yeah. but I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. And sure, I, d- I, I also I guess it's from seeing the way they do things as well as the music that they make. But yeah, you know, I think well, you you're have- you're pretty business minded, so you um you probably see a lot more than most people see. In some ways, it's always the twin. There's always the twin lanes for me. Is um, they they kind of they kind of keep me balanced. I think is is a is is a mixture of business and creativity. But anyway, this gig, right? The Hills were playing the same night, and we we were playing at the zoo. And our show, you know, it was going okay. But we were like, this is, we would have sold it out if we had not had you know five thousand people over the road. So my manager came up with a great idea. Curse him. Um, he's the best guy ever but curse him for the sake of the conversation um he (laughs) said how about you and me go and flyer at the exit because it's a in a tent so you know the gig finishes early we can flyer and then we can get people to come over so yeah there i am outside the hoods gig (laughs) about 45 minutes before i'm due on stage handing flyers out (laughs) to all these young kind of like um how to say it, um, grommets, like hip-hop <laughs> fans, and they're yeah. all standing there going, Ethy, mad, oh, what are you doing here in flies out? Can we take a photo? <laughs> whoa, slapping on the back. They've had a few drinks like, yeah, this mad, whoa, yeah. And I'm sitting there like in that pre-gig kind of anxiety mode, you know? Yeah. Like, and so I'm, I'm sitting there thinking this is the worst idea ever. Anyway, eventually with half an hour to go, I'm like, okay, we've got to get out of here. So we get, we jump into the car, drive back to the venue, pretty much just walk straight out on stage, did the gig. It was, it was pretty, it was an okay gig. I thought it was all right, but I was still like, that was the worst idea ever. Why was I, why did I think about that? I'm, I wasn't overly experienced. I mean, I was a bit experienced, but I was still, you know, I I wasn't ready to put myself into that space. 
Anyway, the review that came from that gig was like, you know, the opening act showed, um, you know, talent and they were a bit unrefined, but they're really going places. Jane is such a star. She's such a, uh, so amazing on stage. Gusto, he's so, um, uh, you know, great behind the decks, you know, doing his thing. And um, it really showed just how talentless Earthboy is and oh, how no. he doesn't really, it just, he just really showed a great contrast between him. And I, I was just like, I want to kill you. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that reviewer is never going to know the context of which that show happened. Of course. But I, I, I couldn't help but just feel like I just lost on every level that night. And, oh, um, no, and, you, that's and it's horrible. funny that you don't, I find those things are always hor- horrible to go through, but they leave you with a good story. And they're so good having shit gigs, you know, and shit moments like that because they're the moments, this sounds like a cliche, but. You really do actually learn from them and you do actually totally. walk away. yeah. The interesting thing about learning and becoming experienced is maybe that you just make those mistakes less, not that they don't happen at all. Of course, yeah. Every now and again when you're off tour and you're just doing these one-off shows, it's really easy to fall back into like a really relaxed way of thinking and and maybe you won't won't rehearse before the show or... There's nothing like being out on stage and feeling a little bit lost. There's just no reason for it. It's just yeah. that you've been lazy and you do, you, it, it takes till you're on stage and you're looking out and you're not prepared and you've forgotten some lyrics and you don't know what the next song is and you <laughs> yeah. just feel a bit half-assed. And the crowd may not even know it, but nah, you just feel they never feel know. They shit. never know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, how do you go remembering lyrics? You've got so many words in your songs. It's the worst. I don't know. I, I've always been envious of some of my peers who just seem to have this natural, um, you know, the, part of their skill set is is memorising quicker than uh, myself. So sometimes, like, I'll have f- peers and friends who will write a verse and within an hour they can perform it and I will be like the same thing but... 50 hours yeah cramming <laughs> before just, shows <laughs> it's it just so that used to take me a lot longer in fact in recent times you know we've done a few herd shows well we've done a couple we've done a couple of herd shows say at the end of last year and the start of this year and I uh, you know last year because of work schedules and whatnot for the first time ever the herd um, prepared for those shows with all of musicians coming together and then the vocalists coming in at the last moment. And I thought, oh, right. we're doomed. <laughs> Jane's from in Melbourne now, so we didn't even have a chance to work with her until like, I think it was like the night before we did a last minute rehearsal. Oh, no. And you know that thing where you're like, oh, that's cool. I'll just rehearse by myself, you know, and yeah. it never happens. No. <laughs> You sort of need the energy of everyone coming together that would make it real. And you can just sing along in the car or or practice in the shower or whatever. It just doesn't – it's not the same and you don't take yeah. it as seriously. But, but yeah, for some reason all of those herd songs just came back to me with such little preparation. And Muscle we memory. Had, yeah, we had all this great energy around it The because the, I love – you know, we, we have – the herd is pretty much – the core of elephant tracks and my whole musical experience, even though that wasn't the first band that I was in. So there's such a love when we come back together that the energy on stage was just so magic 
but for me personally, I have to just go over and over and over and over. And when I'm finished that, just do that again about six times just to even get close to memorizing lyrics. I'm really bad at it. Yeah, I'd, I'm not I'm not great at it either. Yeah. Um, which is not good because I'm writing a hip-hop record at the moment with Kwan and I'm going to have to remember loads of lyrics. <laughs> wow. Hang on a sec. Yeah. You're rapping? <laughs> yeah. I'm awesome. rapping. But this I'm, is... I'm going to rap like the whitest lady alive. <laughs> great, great. Well, it's better, it's better than anything else, you know, <laughs> be yourself. Yeah. Maybe I'll um maybe I can send you some tracks when they're done and you can critique. <laughs> I'll be your I'll be the critique critic from the zoo that night. Yeah. <laughs> Just unleash. You'll on be you. dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's enjoy it while it's positive, eh? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'd love to hear it. I I am super excited to hear that now. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's like it's. It's going to be really different to your earnest rapping. I can say that much. <laughs> it's like it's going to be really um filthy and um even and better. silly. And also and then like coupled with me not really being a rapper. Oh cool. So when you say filthy, are you using bad language? Is that Yeah, bad bad language. Oh, I can't I can't can't fuck with that. <laughs> I yeah, just it's gonna be. I mean, we're not saying the N word or anything. Yeah, that's definitely good. <laughs> that's definitely good. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to talk to you about this because I'm a I'm a big fan of hip hop, and I I do find myself liking a lot of sexist hip hop, and yeah. I find it really difficult to reconcile as a as a lady. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you because I mean all of your stuff is is obviously very Sexist. earnest and and lots of <laughs> and very political and very um I mean, you know, obviously the herd stuff is very political and and your solo stuff is is really autobiographical and and beautiful and um I wanted to ask you like do you listen to to stuff that's like misogynist and sexist because that's, you know, I feel like that's kind of where hip hop started. Yeah, I think that this is such an interesting area of conversation, not so much in the the songs and the content of a lot of particularly US hip hop, but every country has 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 passes that they give. Sure. I think it's more interesting from the listener, just as you're talking here, like the context of what we permit and what is permissible is so hypocritical. This is just the fact of of being a fan of hip hop is that you cannot be across the most uh, innovative of artists and have a staunch view on this because otherwise you have to walk away from it because yeah. we all we all have our tut tut kind of oh that's not good kind of moments and then we all have our no this is culturally um, you know um, so great that. We'll we'll give a pass to it. Now, the use of bitch in rap music is still this sort of like no one's asking questions about it in a mainstream context. Like obviously yeah. there's a, there's a louder voice than ever that is challenging this this acceptance of that word, right? But it's still 
a absolute, um, you know, hallmark. It, it's it's a it's it's one of the most commonly used words in hip hop culture from yeah. gangster rappers right through to the people that everybody. Um, worships like Kendrick. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've had. We, I was talking to this about my with my colleagues the other day, and they were talking about how one of the people that we deal with professionally um, at our distributor was saying, "Well, in humble, Kendrick's use of the word bitch is not sexist." Of course, that's a white male saying that. And we're all like, what? No, but I think that's true. I've been reading some articles about it recently just because I've been trying to reconcile my beliefs with my own taste. And also, like, you know, Quan and I have been have been rapping about some... I don't find it sexist because I'm a female. So what does it mean for me to say bitch? Does that mean that, like, it's disrespectful to women? I don't. I don't feel like it is because I know what kind of person I am. Yeah. But you know, like I was reading about the word bitch and people are saying that it's actually not a representation of women. Like you could call like a man bitch as well. Yeah, for sure. And then also there's that whole thing about like is the artist advocating what what they rap? Are they disrespecting women in real life? And that's when it becomes bad, you know. It's not I don't find it bad in the lyrics, but I find it bad if they're actually advocating that shit, you know. Well, I guess it comes down to how you define um, the power of language and where you sit with it. I mean, on one on one level, I will happily say that I think it's ludicrous to look to gangster rap as the source of acts of violence just because people take those lyrics to be um, uh, an incitement. To that yeah, but it's like blaming Marilyn Manson for Columbine. You know, it's like of That's course right. it's not. It's it, that was never his intention. We don't have the same level of blaming um, going on with Hollywood. Not in the same way. There's always going to be a um, you know section of any community that is uncomfortable with. Um, movies and the way they depict violence but there is a quite a different approach given to music than to movies because it's accepted in movies that it's just entertainment and fiction whereas in music there is such a gray area between autobiographical writing of lyrics and entertainment so I think that people perceive lyrics and in, in music differently to the way they perceive dialogue in movies and actions in movies but yeah. having said that, I have to say I disagree um, with the use of bitch in rap music. I think that the the sheer derogatory nature of it and the source of why that's derogatory is inherently sexist for men to use it. Now, when you what say about you women? use it, yeah. I think that you are what you do and in how how you um, communicate is completely up to you because you are a female i don't think there's anything near the same sort of level of offense for a woman to use that word as it is for a man because i think it's all context and and i don't necessarily think that it's always as vicious in in particular usages because you're sitting there saying well um you're a you, you know like there can be one 
context of the use of bitch, which you're, you're merely talking about another man. But but why is that an insult then? Yeah, I know. It's it's a fine line. I don't feel comfortable with it, but I definitely feel like that word is still given a massive pass in hip-hop. Yeah. And we we hold some artists to account and some others that we don't, and that's our own hypocrisy. Yeah, it is hypocrisy. But what do you – do you listen to like – because there's a lot of controversy um, – you know, like a couple of years ago with Odd Future and Tyler, the creator and stuff. Um, and they ha- did you ever listen to that stuff? Yeah, I was never really into it, though. Um, it wasn't it wasn't that I was shying away from the controversy. I just never it never really gelled with me. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think Tyler, the creator is such an interesting rapper. I think, you know, he can make any sentence sound immaculate. The way yep. that he says it, which I think is a real talent. Now that I know how hard that is, <laughs> I think that's um, you know, that's yeah. it's a really it's a really beautiful talent that he has. But yeah, I like I said, I just I find it hard to reconcile um, my taste with my own beliefs <laughs> sometimes. And even like I'm a huge Cool Keith and Doctor Octagon fan, and some of his stuff is so fucked. Yeah, I mean it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because it's sort of like you wouldn't you can't you can't condone these things on a personal level yet you also can't turn your back completely on some of the highest level of the artistry yeah because of the use of that kind of word uh well you can i i I guess i don't really know what the answer is and I, i i don't mean to present like i do and i and in answer to your other question, yes, I do listen to that music and I do listen to music much more sort of offensive because I'm constantly trying to expose myself to all sorts of different ideas. But it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me and I definitely have a different view of particularly the, the use of, of that word um, now than when I did when I was younger. I used to think it was fine to use it as, as a way of um, you know, b- dissing other male rappers, you know, like, but, but it, it was, I think it was my sister-in-law who originally challenged me and she, she said it's actually one of the most offensive words that you can use because of the context of it. And I, I don't really, I, the thing I don't, I don't look at Kendrick and sort of wave my finger and go, oh, you are morally, um, you know, questionable because of your use of this word because on one level I have so much deep admiration for him he's so great on so many levels that I I don't stop listening and learning from him because of that but at the same time I look around and I see people who have these political convictions who seemingly just walk past that and I think we all have those things in our lives where we would we would like to be really hardline but we're not we let things go and we are we're hypocrites and it's part of life but i don't know i don't know whether letting it go is completely the wrong thing nor do i think it's the right thing i think there's this it's just yeah, it's just it's com- tough, complex it? yeah the way that i see it now is that like certain rap lyrics provoke me um, especially, you know, when, when they're like pretty filthy and, and um, obviously, 
you know, like I think Tyler Creator said that he, like, he was just trying to piss off old white people. <laughs> so, yeah. like, they're obviously there. It's for a purpose that he's writing these lyrics. Yeah. Um, but I feel like if lyrics provoke me and make me question and confront my own demons, or or question and provoke me in a way that you know makes makes me wonder about like, is this right or is this wrong? Then that's like served its purpose for me, and so I find that really interesting. I think that these these things, there's so many really difficult questions that don't have easy answers in in everything that in in life, and you, you you know it's easy to kind of take a step back and make judgments of other people, um, but really engaging with the complexities of the meaning that it has for for us, let alone other people who you you. You've never walked a mile in their shoes, so you don't truly understand how to even approach these things from someone else's perspective. I mean, it, it becomes pretty awkward to start trying to become all-knowing and, and as if you are, you have the answer for them. I, I've kind of accepted that some of this stuff I'm still just trying to honestly engage with and and be uh, just be real about, you know? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Well, I think it's just really interesting. I mean, I, I had this thing uh, a few years ago. Um, uh, Kanye played uh, Splendor and it was one year that I played as well. And I was standing up in, it was when it was at the Woodford site. And um, I was in that, that, I was somewhere deep in the crowd. And when, when he was, um, when he was playing, I think it was Gold Digger. And the whole crowd was just singing along with the N-word. And I went on Twitter and I was like, man, that was really weird. I just think yeah. I have never felt so strange in it. I mean, and let's talk, let's be real. Splendor is a white crowd. Like I, yeah. I never understood it being a white person myself, just how white it was until I hung out with my um, uh, Ethiopian bandmate last year at Splendor, we, we played, and it was such an awesome festival. But she was walking around the ground, and she was like, "Oh my god, I don't, I don't, I have not seen another black person here." Yeah, that's not to say they didn't exist. That was just to say how it was so predominantly white, right? And so being in that crowd, and everybody's using the N word, and I, I went on Twitter and said, "This is, you know, this is messed up." And I had another rapper who's has pretty, he's pretty high profile. We had a little spat over it. He was like, "Man, oh, you no. can si- you can sing lyrics. That's part of hip hop. That that's how that's how we engage with it. We always do that. You sing along. It's just lyrics." And I was like, "No, nah, I fi- I think that this has crossed a line." And and since that time, I think there's been a lot more people who've c- come out and and challenged it. And I didn't. It wasn't that I knew what I was talking about, but I just knew it was a really, um, you know, a, a sensitive feeling. area that no one worries about because. No one's thinking about it. It's a white audience, as if you, as if anyone's calling anyone out. Like we're yeah. all thinking the same. We d- we haven't walked in other people's shoes, so it seems like a really okay thing to do. Like it's a weird word because I find the rap that I listen to, um, that that word is like so prominent in so many of those lyrics. And when I try and write rap, because you know, like I love Biggie and stuff, and there's so many n bombs <laughs> in all of yeah. that music, and um. And I find when I'm trying to write my own raps, I I end up like substituting where I think that word might go with like fucker or something. <laughs> yeah, that that's right. And that's yeah. that's that's cool. And if that's the biggest problem that, you know, 
us white people have to navigate around in order to, you know, be respectful of the culture and the the history that that birthed the language and the slang, then, you know, so be it. It's such a it's such a tiny thing in the in the realm of trying to engage with like a, you know, yeah. a, with a culture that is not yours like that's a funny there's an interesting thing and i know that we're talking about it being deep but really this is the mo- one of the this is such an interesting um conversation to be had because australia feels like it's so far behind this conversation that takes place in america and also yeah. in in the uk and these places that do actually have just a natural presence of black and white people. That's not to say that racism is not a massive problem in those areas, but there's just a conversation that I feel is so naive in Australia because of how the majority, uh, you know, Anglo voice that rules the conversation that there's, we don't even allow to hear another perspective. So, um, you know, I think there's there's a growing awareness of cultural appropriation. And this is at the heart of it. Like you can't, that word, it is synonymous with the struggle and the the, Close, the harking yeah. back to, to to what makes up so much of hip hop culture. That's not an area to take lightly when people say it. The depth of pain inside that word is like a locked door that you do not get to go in. And I'm, you know, that that's part that's part of like learning how to be respectful and operate. Um, you know, within someone else's culture, without without just barging all over it, and um, even as much as the herd's always been political, I feel like we've in the past had no real deep understanding of this stuff, and I and um, you know, I I think social media even has been such a great um, asset in being able to be exposed to you know just how complex this stuff is for other cultures and. And yeah. understanding and getting a better understanding of why, not just like not to do it, but why not to oh, do totally, it. Totally, yeah. And it's, I mean, coming from someone who's like, I am a, like, you know, six foot tall, white German, <laughs> I could not be, <laughs> <laughs> I could not be further from Biggie. Um, yeah. But I do want to be respectful and I do, and like, even, and I, I hope that people will, will listen to the songs that Quan and I have written in a way that, that they can they know that we're not those people like you know it's it's all just like funny to us and um yeah hopefully they'll know in the same way that i know that uh you know that like the people that i listen to aren't rapists you know yeah yeah i think i think there is um no like there are some rules definitely but i think that so much of the way that we weighed in and out of each other's cultures um speaking in a really broad sense really is not about setting black and white guidelines it's about tone and respect and context and that stuff can easily seem hypocritical until you 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 wade deeper and deeper in and and you genuinely have such a deep respect that you you learn that Learning the why enables you to pursue your passion if your passion is engaged in that culture. So I've always been in hip hop. It's all I've always gravitated to it. Yet the, the the older I get, the more I understand just how necessary it is as a white person to 
to get it and listen and be aware of of um, of cultural appropriation and and I, I don't I don't think that you you should stay out of it. I don't think the answer is to completely walk away. Like sometimes the extremes of this argument is like don't participate in hip hop at all because you're white. I, I'm not down with that. I think there is a way of taking a taking a you know sitting down. Put it that way. That's like knowing how to sit down and just not not be that white voice that has pretty much been the reason why we have such a divide between people from different cultures. Totally. Yeah. I really wanted to talk to you about production. Mm-hmm. Do you produce your own records? Like do you do you write your own backing tracks? I did for a while. Oh, the answer is no. Um but I did for a while and when I was working with the herd it was a little bit more collaborative, like we'd go away and work and you couldn't always just write lyrics. So I bought an MPC and I was sampling and I was working with other producers to really refine it and I wrote a few songs that actually did end up um, on records. Like I wrote um, 2020 off the Herds record and a, yeah. a, um, King Is Dead was a production I did with Solo and, and I really got into it but then I started to be of the thinking that I just couldn't do everything and get better to where I needed to be. Um, So I just sort of took a back seat on production in general and just tried to really focus on my writing. And it was a bit of a conscious decision rather than something that wasn't giving me any enjoyment, so I walked away from it. I I really enjoyed it on a lot of levels and I loved the, the... the the interesting thing is not doing production and it succeeding or not doing production because it wasn't succeeding. The interesting thing for me was just a process thing and it is so fascinating for me to write the music and be involved in every decision of how that song is sounding and then try and then writing lyrics to it because you never you never engage with a piece of music as a songwriter um, in the same way, if if you have been part of everything right up to the point where you start writing, in the same way that you do if someone has just given you a piece of music and you respond to it, That's because right. there's just this yeah, it's so different. There's this purity and this um, this completely you know unique feeling that you get when when a piece of music just lands on you. You you receive it in a different way to the to what would how how your creative juices would flow when you've been involved with it develop all the way along and i i love that i really love just receiving a piece of music and writing to it even if that yeah me too even if it's really basic and it develops um so yeah i i i think i love both but i just you know you can't do everything and sometimes you just got to let go of 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 some things that are fun and are challenging just because, you know, you just got to let go of things sometimes. That's a great approach. Yeah. Have you ever dealt with sample clearance? I have, yes. I mean, in the early days, no. But for for instance, the last one we did was Long Loud Hours and uh, that was not the core part of the music. The, the core part of the music was all written, but the vocal sample in the song, which is this high-pitched um, snippet, it's like, Hey, baby. Um, I'm all alone. That yeah. that thing there is actually a sample of Billy Thorpe. Oh wow! Uh, and just pitched up. It was just like a random sample that was 
put into the song well before the lyrics were written. And I actually wrote, I think, two songs on that beat before settling in on a third, which the, the first two, the, the lyrical content made no sense with that sample, but the sample sounded good on the song. So it wasn't that, that I needed them to make sense together. It was just that something didn't quite add up. So I kept on writing and trying new things and eventually settled on this story between John Killick and Lucy Dudko. Yeah. And it sort of made sense, hey, baby, I'm alone, you know, he's in jail and, you know, he's, he's sort of despairing and needs her to rescue him. But that sample turned out to be, we didn't know it at the time, it was actually Billy Thorpe doing a live version of um, a song called Hallelujah, I Love Her So, which is Ray Charles's first... Oh, no. Um, <laughs> it's his first hit. And um, so we suddenly realised that we weren't trying to clear a song that was in Albert's catalogue and I was signed to Albert so we didn't really think it was going to be too much of an issue. It was something that was going international to bloody Ray Charles' estate, which Shit. was a, a, felt like a nightmare. But it was all done relatively smoothly and we didn't we, we had to give off... Um, you know, writing credits for the use of it. But we actually went and cleared it. It felt amazing to be able to actually go and do something with such an artist like Ray Charles. Yeah. But the next thing about that sample that's so annoying and I think which is the interesting thing about this clearance is that it was it was Billy Thorpe doing a version of Hallelujah, I Love Her So, but the actual words that we use, which was, hey, baby, I'm all alone, they actually are different to the original lyrics that Ray Charles wrote. They're oh. just like improvised by Billy Thorpe in the performance <laughs> of that song. Right. And so we thought, well, we probably could just clear the master because technically he's not, the lyrics aren't the same. So surely we don't have to clear the Ray Charles component, yeah. the publishing side of it. But of course you can't just clear the master and not the publishing. You have to kind of clear both sides of the original work. And, you know, all things being um, done properly, you do act, even if he changed the lyrics, you still have to clear the original song. So, um, but we got it. It was it was such a little moment of like fist pumping glory yeah. for us. <laughs> little rappers from Sydney being able to clear a Ray Charles sample. <laughs> I remember reading an article where, um, you know, Beck sampled uh, Van Morrison's band Them for Jackass for that um, intro in Jackass, and then they realised that that Van Morrison was doing a cover of Bob Dylan. So suddenly it was like this super heavy sample clearance. <laughs> and that yeah. sounds like a, like a sort of a similar thing. Like you kind of think it's no big deal and then you're like, oh, fuck, now it's Bob Dylan. Now it's <laughs> Ray <laughs> Charles. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a shocker. But that's the interesting thing about sample clearance i mean this it's so gray that that area like there's clearly clearly a moral issue about use of previous music in your own and trying to claim it as your own but i come from a genre of music that is has took so long to even have any kind of sense of validation from an industry perspective that the vast majority of recordings never cleared samples because we didn't even know how to start like we weren't even 
No, there was no major labels involved, firstly. There was barely any publishers. There was no expertise in the whole bloody genre. This whole subculture over here didn't really have those kind of gateways to to doing things officially. So, you know, I mean, I even, I'm even aware of like really big artists not clearing samples over here. And I think it come, it stems from a sort of sense of outsiderness and not feeling like you even can play ball to do things properly. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's definitely changed now. Like most artists have to go through that process and, 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 and fair call too, because I don't, I think the vast majority of artists do want to do the right thing and not claim someone else's work for their own. Yeah. It's a very, it's very different from say that other side of it, which is the legal side, which is like you touch anything and you have to, you know, go through this process where everyone gets paid as yeah. a result of that. Well, no, nah, fuck that because you want to have creative freedom and the, the, you want to be able to to innovate and take things into a completely new context. And that's the reality about sampling is that quite often you offer up new art. Now, if you really have hardcore rules around copyright, you shut down that freedom of expression and that just that's cool on one level, but if that's going to prevent, you know, people from hearing amazing creative ideas and art, well, that sucks just for everyone, not just yeah. for the musicians. That, that sucks for art in general. Of course. But it is like it's such a fine line because it's so easy to get fucked if you don't clear it, you know, then suddenly they're taking like 80% of your whole song or you know like yeah. for a tiny little piece that you used um i don't know i i find it i've never had to deal with it thankfully but i find it the concept really stressful yeah for sure i mean you you see you know it was so sad with men at work and and yeah down under exactly and, that's and, such know, that, a sad that, story it is it, there's nothing good about that story at all i mean the the kind of handballing of the rights to kookaburra sits on the gum tree whatever the original song is and um you know the the handballing of those rights so that it's owned by this you know pub this corporate kind of publisher that just trades in buying these things like they they're, they're kind of products to make money off and then by chance finds that there's this similarity in this piece of music and then this poor flutist who's done this is, you know, maybe has been really cynical and yeah. just literally lip, ripped it. But maybe it hasn't happened like that. It's one of those happy coincidences. Now, I I understand there's got to be a process there to be able to, to sort of determine if, you know, if it's that close that there has to be some sort of acknowledgement of it somehow. But, you know, he, he I'm not sure if I should even be talking about this, but he, he ended up. Um, committing suicide, that that guy in that group, right? A few years later, yeah. And I don't know whether that was the reason for it, but the pressure that must have put him under, um, you know, I, I it's such a it's such a sad thing. So many years after that, we're 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 scrutinising a piece of work um, under such circumstances, and that that's one of those things around copyright that I feel is really, um, you know, it's depressing. Did you ever hear that story about um, John Fogarty from Credence um, that he got sued for sounding too much like Credence? Because, you know, he had to give up the, the Credence Clearwater Revival name 
and then he went solo and I think then when he was writing songs he got sued for sounding too much like his old songs. It's so, <laughs> it's so that stuff awful. is just so I mean that kind of that that's just cartoon like in its absurdity. I mean Yeah, it's losing copyright to your own song and then getting sued for sounding like yourself. When business starts stepping too heavily on the toes of art it's never a good thing. Yeah, it it's never a good thing for the artist. It's never a good thing for the audience. Yeah. It's never a good thing for business because no. that business is it needs to be walking hand in hand in order to have like a, a, a you know a good relationship with 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 what generates that money for the business to make sense. I don't I, I hate hearing stories like that. And I they, there's so many of them and they they exist on all sorts of different levels that that um, that pro- put roadblocks and red lights in front of um, yeah. people who are creatively... It's all red tape. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's part of the reality of operating in, on, on levels that people like John Fogarty are accustomed to, to dealing with, but far out, like just, just throw it all in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. So depressing. <laughs> imagine, imagine being told by a judge that you have to change your sound. I yeah. mean, jeez, like just the thought of that. So it's like, depressing. Oh, how, what do I do? How do I do? I mean, I sit down and I, I write chords and I come up with things that sound good to me and yeah. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. And it's my voice. It belongs to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. hopefully um, this podcast will pick up now when I ask you <laughs> what – your story is tell me your strangest or worst gig story please um the de- the definition of worst and one anecdote feels weird because like I that know. puts it into a a contest of of badness and and worstness like whenever i get asked about like what was the best or the worst i think well can i just can we just sort of sidestep the best and the worst and actually just go well this was a really weird one and i was um <laughs> I, I i think that they they all have these different qualities about them these stories and depending on the retelling of them and maybe how many wines you've had yeah. um, just how kind of entertaining they are but the one that definitely comes to mind is um I got a few shows in Japan many years ago and one of them was in an aquarium but that's not the gig I'm actually <laughs> going to talk about but the aquarium it was like 10 a.m on a Sunday morning Amazing. in Osaka it was just one for the books but <laughs> but the one that stood out the most and there was so many bizarre gigs on that little mini tour but we played in an apple store yeah in tokyo is this with earth boy or with the Her- it was earth boy yeah yeah yep. there was some hermitude shows and there were some earth boy shows on this run but this one was kind of a combination of us and 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 it was just like underneath a staircase in one of those white just completely sterile apple stores with <laughs> massive windows and we're kind of loading in and before we went in there, we thought, well, the best thing we could do is, um, is you know, is is prepare ourselves. And there was this sort of this gig that we did just prior to that in this motorcycle bar, and which was a tiny bar that was just, and it wasn't like a bikey's bar. Don't get me wrong, it was like Vespers and shit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> giving you a bit of context. It was this real cute Japanese, um, you know, themed bar, and and so anyway. These guys, kind of out of nowhere, who were friends with the venue owners, 
gave us a ride to the Apple store in these black black kind of it wasn't a Hummer but it was like black tinted windows right. sort of four wheel drive type thing Gangster and um, kind of yeah like these guys weren't talking to us it wasn't yakuza i mean i doubt it was yakuza but it was it's just pretty staunch guys in leather jackets and um <laughs> anyway they they ro- roll up a joint so we we smoked this this straight joint and went to the apple store and of course there's, it's all quite official at the apple store although really half-assed at the same time like they had a little they had two sort of speakers there and they had turntables all set up but the audience was literally people who were just going to buy an iphone or buy an ipod like it wasn't people would be like, oh there's a gig here let's go and watch it it was we were performing to really indifferent customers retail dudes yeah <laughs> who bless their cotton socks a japanese audience weren't offended that there was a white dude from Sydney <laughs> rapping at them while they're <laughs> trying to buy some overpriced Apple shit. <laughs> and um, we had smoked a joint before then, so we weren't even really sharp. We were like, well, we're in an Apple store. Let's not yeah. take this too seriously. <laughs> and so the banter was just horrific. <laughs> and um, there, was, there must have been about... Oh, 17 people there, none of which were facing us. And we're sitting there trying to make conversation and just make it fun. And, um, and you know, we finished the gig and, you know, that no clapping, just sort of like interested people who were kind of like watching us. And we just sort of walked off the stage. And <laughs> um, and we, we just really knew we were in a – this was the career for us. Oh. Um, <laughs> after that show, we just knew we were on the right track. <laughs> That's great. It was, it was so awkward and so great. And the, the photos, you know, we had someone come in and take photos too. Like, oh, would you mind coming and take photos? That was so awesome because you couldn't use them at all. You know, you just, oh, you, you can't. It, luckily, it wasn't like now where you need photos post gig to put up on your socials. Sure. It was just like you're taking a photo of an Apple store with us yeah. in the corner and a few people facing in other yeah. directions. Like, your eyes are there's all nothing, red. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing positive about that situation it just looks like we have kind of found ourselves you know in um somewhere we shouldn't be <laughs> yeah we're like yeah we're playing in Tokyo an apple store launch you know industry gig yeah <laughs> I'm so glad that that you didn't get disheartened oh that was a career highlight <laughs> we had the decency to realize how funny it was at the same yeah. time but also the gig in the aquarium being at 10 a.m., I'm not sure what we did the night before, but we didn't really sleep and we'd caught a, a, one of the bullet trains to get there. So we're all so delirious and standing up, you know, in front of this weird performance at this aquarium. And then what <laughs> followed us was sort of like this school orchestral um, ensemble and it was like, what are we doing? How, do, how are we even here? And there was someone from... Um, like the the embassy who was there to sort of oversee it and yeah. like some kind of cultural exchange. Perfect. They it's nailed just, it. Yeah. <laughs> nailed it. it was, Australia. There's it cultural confusion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were probably a perfect advas- advertisement for Australia too, just like, yeah, we don't know what we're doing either. But come over, we've got beaches. Just like a few stone dudes turning up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, I love it. Thumbs up. Hey, yep. thank thank you so much for coming on my podcast and chatting to me. Hey, my my pleasure.
I, I can't wait to run into you again at a festival. We, we will have another run in. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for taking the time as oh, well. Oh, thanks, Tim. <laughs>